Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. It's another morning. Good for morning. Us, for us, it's a Wednesday morning, which is our usual recording time. Welcome, everybody, uh, to this edition of our podcast. Uh, I've got a hodgepodge of all kinds of interesting stuff today. We're going to talk a little bit about vitamin K. We had a letter from a, a reader, uh, from Jeannie, and I want to review some data about the ARRIVE trial, but there's so much other little stuff going on that we will get to. So I hope that this uh, hour, hour and 15 minutes interests you and that you bear with us because you never know what pearls of wisdom are going to come out of Bliss's mouth, <laughs> let alone mine. <laughs> so, I was going to say out of our butts. <laughs> no, you don't say that. By the way, you're too far from your mic, I think. I am. Well, I couldn't hear you as well. Hello? Testing one, two, testing. See, this is our high production value. that We, we do all this stuff on uh, live on air. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't want to spend time uh, with that with for our listeners. So... Um, I didn't have any births this week, but you had a very interesting weekend, and I'd like to well, start first, out with, with the most positive thing I can think of, and that's a love fest with you and Hayes <laughs> uh, in Santa Barbara. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, Innate Journey? Yeah, so I mean, those of you who, who listen to us all the time know that um, Hayes and I started a childbirth education class in Los Angeles called The Innate Journey. And um, we had a lot of birth workers who wanted to come and audit our class because we were doing something really different, um, weaving in uh, the sacred ritual, sexuality, and um, a real strong commitment in keeping partners together. So facilitating conversations prenatally um, to help support them in having their relationship be stronger after the delivery rather than what can happen to relationships um, when they're new parents. And um, so we just decided we would do a birth worker um, version of the innate journey. We did one in Los Angeles a one day last year. And I just, at the end of it, I just felt like this is my, this is like what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so we, we visioned and planned to do this two day, uh, kind of like a retreat style workshop where we gave it a little bit more space. We did it someplace beautiful. And you know, the, the main intention is to fill the cups of these birth workers. Um, birth keeper is another, another term that's used so that they can go out into the world and give their gifts, their individual passions, um, their unique genius. and my work and Hayes's work can kind of like ripple out in that way. Obviously we can only see so many people individually. So um, it's just, it, I get really funny around um, leading workshops. Um, like if I was, had my druthers, I probably wouldn't do it because I get so stressed out and anxious ahead of time, which is, you know, not really, like me, like I can walk into a birth room and be totally chill. <laughs> um, but you get me in front of a room where I'm teaching and I get really funny, but, um, 
it's a, it's a divine calling. Like I'm, I know I'm supposed to be doing it. I know I'm supposed to be giving this gift. And so, um, I always have a lot of anxiety before. And then when, when it's all over and I get to hear what the participants got out of the experience, I just am like, it's all worth it. So, you know, the closing part of what we did was on the beach together and everyone talked about, you know, what they got out of the weekend and, you know, things like people being seen and heard like they've never been in their entire life. Um, women being reconnected to their own sexuality, which in turn gives them like the ability to really like have those deep conversations with clients. Um, people struggling in their own relationships and feeling like totally empowered in their, in their center and their strength. Um, we did a lot of grief work, which is not surprising, um, given, you know, that it's woven into the fabric of who I am and the work that I do now. Um, a lot of people came into this space with a lot of grief. So we processed a lot of grief. We held space for each other. Um, each person created a project from their passion that they're going to complete in 2022. And, um, the projects are like mind blowing of what each one of these women wants to do. And, um, so I'm totally lit up. I, um, am so grateful that I had an opportunity to sit with these beautiful human beings and that they trusted Hayes and I to, you know, a lot of them said, sitting at the feet of, of their elders. So I'm an elder now I've got the, you know, no, Bliss, um, but what it, go, I, was yeah. just, I was just going to say that there's very little in this, in this world we have right now that could be more necessary yeah. than reconnecting with your, yourself and your individuality and your sexuality and your humanity, because the theme that you'll see that runs through a lot of the topics we discussed today is, is the industrialization and the dehumanization of our profession and of the world around us has, has divided people. It's, it's uh, demoralized people. You look at people in our profession who go on this assembly line shift mentality. I have five minutes for a prenatal visits. Uh, I want to get out and in and out as fast as possible mentality. Um, I can't prescribe what I want. I can't, uh, I, I'd only have enough time to talk to the clients. It's not as satisfying. So doing something that you just did, that you did this weekend for those workers or keepers, as you like to call them, um, nothing could be more necessary. You know, I wish that doctors who work in the hospital could have seminars like that, as opposed to seminars on hand washing and uh, harassment and uh, diversity, um, you know, all may be slightly important, but certainly nothing can compare to preparing them to do a better job than the kind of things that you were doing and actually live a fuller life. So uh, I think I'm happy, I'm happy to do it for the doctors too. <laughs> well, I think what we're going to do, as you mentioned earlier, is we're going to get uh, Hayes on. Yeah. And, yeah. And the two of you together are now, uh, there's a new, there's a new uh, verb for that, right? Yeah. Somebody came up with it in this circle that I was talking about at the end and they said, um, cause you know, people were saying, I don't think I'm ever going to be the same. And one of them, we call ourselves team blaze, you know, bliss and haze kind of combined. And so one of them said, I've been blazed. And so we thought that's great. We need t-shirts. 
exactly. <laughs> Bumper stickers, t-shirts, whatever. But anyway, I think I think it's great. Thanks. And you know what was so interesting, Stu, is I recorded yesterday, well, Monday. So I had it on the weekend. And then Monday morning, I recorded um, doing it at home podcast. And um, it was kind of off their normal schedule. And, you know, it just kind of happened to be the day right after this workshop. And it was so perfect because I came out of the weekend so impassioned and so enlivened and had so much to say that um, it was really fun to record that. And well, the, when it comes the, out, you uh, let people know and, and post I it. I will. Yeah. So people can find yeah. it. Okay. So we got we to gotta move on to other, you know, maybe less uplifting things but darn this is a follow-up um somebody wrote me when we did our thing on nausea and hyperemesis mm-hmm. how come we didn't mention cbd yeah and i didn't even think about it when we did the thing because it's not in the guidelines for that i read and i i, I thought about it. but what do you think about cbd i did think of it and um it's one of those ones that i you know, you guys caught me. There are times when I would rather have these kinds of conversations intimately rather than publicly, just because of, you know, there's so, there's so much, uh, I don't know. I don't, uh, discrimination is the word that I'm coming up with, but that's not right. Judgment around it. But I, I a hundred percent think that CBD is very effective. Um, I even had a woman who had hyperemesis who went to the hospital and did all of the medications and nothing was helping her. And so she checked herself out AMA and went home and actually used medicinal marijuana. Um, And that was the only way that she got through her pregnancy. And um, I personally think that if it's the only thing that's working, it's certainly a reasonable choice. I don't even think it's that controversial, certainly not in our state. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But, um, you know, especially when you start to think about it as plant medicine, um, you know, it probably in a lot of ways, it's, it's better than pharmaceuticals. So CBD, if we're talking about CBD in particular, um, that's different than using something that has THC. Um, but yeah. Okay. So that answers that. All right. So we have a, you know, we have rules and, and um, sayings on the birthing instincts podcast. I came up with a new one. It's called well, um, you have rules. I want to make it clear that they're your rules. <laughs> yeah, okay. You okay. Don't, you, you don't agree with some of them? I don't know. We're just getting a lot of rules. That's all. So I'm just making it clear well, that they're Dr. Stu's rules. We're living in the age of rules. So if, if, if big government can make rules, why can't Dr. Stu? Uh, anyway, yes, here's, a, here's a new attendant. I know maybe it's not a rule. I guess a rule may not be the right word, but it's saying. <laughs> it's, it's listen to me because I've been canceled. So oh, okay. The reason I say that is because everyone I know who's been canceled has actually been canceled for speaking the truth. So I can't think of anybody who's been canceled for not speaking the truth. So anyway, because the only reason that you get canceled is because you speak something that makes the narrative, uh, those who support the mainstream narrative, uncomfortable. And rather than debating you, they cancel you. So, you know, my little snowflake up in Alberta who canceled me, uh, I'm wondering how she's liking her country now, but I won't, I won't, that's all I'll say about that. Okay. Uh, okay. She, she probably is thrilled. Um, 
Yesterday, I tried to call in a prescription for uh, uh, all-purpose nipple ointment. Uh-huh. Okay, so you know what that is. Yeah. And though I called right. the compounding pharmacy, and the compounding pharmacy pharmacist said, you have to do it through eScript. And I said, the well, new- what if I don't do it through, what if you can't do it through eScript? Well, then I'll take it verbally. So I said to her, so why can't you just take it verbally? <laughs> <laughs> And she said, no, you have to do it through eScript. So I went to eScript and I have, and when you do eScript and you have to put in a new client, you know, you're sitting in your car, you're on your phone or wherever you are, and you, and you have to get the client's name and you have to get her date of birth and you have to get her height and her weight and her zip code and her address. And you have to enter all this data for the first time for a new patient that's being entered into your eScript account. And then you go to find the pharmacy and I'm looking at the pharmacy and I'm putting in the name of her pharmacy um, and it's not coming up. And then I realized that the zip code that they're looking for the pharmacy in is the zip code of my office in Calabasas. And this woman lives in uh, Los Feliz. It's a different area of, of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So then I'm realizing that the only pharmacies that will come up on this is the, in the zip code that the woman lives. So I have to change the zip code. But what if the woman is, is traveling in Santa Barbara, but lives in, um, Orange County. So then she has to give me the zip code of where she's at. Why do I, why, why, do, maybe she wants to pick it up when she gets home or when she's on vacation or whatever. And you have to, it's becoming so complicated. Yeah. So I finally figured out how to find her pharmacy. So then I put in all purpose deployment into the formulary, doesn't exist, not in there. So I finally called the pharmacist and the pharmacist said, well, I'll take it orally, but you could put in each individual ingredient. And that'll come up and then you can put in the notes that you want to mix it all together. And it's like, uh-huh. are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? I can give you, the, I can leave this on your voicemail in a matter of about 20 seconds. Yeah. And you're saying it's going to take me five minutes to do it or more. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is progress. Yeah. I get your frustration with that for sure, Stu. It's very tedious data entry, and the you know, governments always tend to make things more difficult and I, and and less efficient. And I, I said last time, I think the reason they're doing this in California is because I think there's a monetary benefit for the state to do it through eScript, because why else would they really do something like this? And if this becomes the norm and everything the government touches becomes more tedious and more complicated, why would anyone want the government to run healthcare at all? Um, and after all that's been going on, who still thinks the government cares about your individual health? I mean, raise your right. hand. Raise your hand out there. I see <laughs> no hands. No hands. Right? Yeah. I mean, individual health is a, is a very good way of, of highlighting what's happening is it's not really about the individual. So then... So speaking of more government stuff, so I was reviewing labs I got on a client that's new, transferred in, and I got her labs from her old doctor. And I saw something on the lab report that I'd never seen before. After her RH type, which is a type, uh, um, which was positive, which was normal, okay, it says, my glasses on, state law requires that the person tested be informed as to the RH type result. And I thought to myself, there's a law? that this, this, this was something that was debated in Sacramento and then signed on the governor's desk 
that state law requires that the person tested be informed as to her RH type result? Why not her CBC result? Why not her blood type result? Why not her syphilis result? But the only one is there is for the RH result. Why would they do that? I guess maybe because of the sensitization that can happen where you could not be able to carry future children. That's the only thing I could think of. Do we need a law? <laughs> I don't know. There's so many laws. Hey, by the way, I went back because last, I think it was last episode, um, you had talked about that that small baby that the um, midwife had called you about. And so yeah. I actually went and I looked at all of the California midwifery laws and it is in there. Yep. It's in there and it says that um, it, the wording is interesting, but it basically says that you need to consult with um, a doctor and possibly transport. So um, I, I don't think that's different than transport. Yeah, I'll get the actual language and we can we can kind of uh, dissect it next time. But, you know, given that her pediatrician would have would have transported as well, um, you know, there. You, it, most of the doctors, besides maybe you, uh, are going to, um, you know, defer to them being sent into the hospital. Well, so, yeah. as of as of February twenty third, twenty twenty two, I'm still a doctor. You are licensed in California. Still, as of ten twenty four a.m. <laughs> That's right. You are. <laughs> we shall see how long. We'll see how long that lasts. All right, because I, I actually have a, a, a thing about that coming up later. You know, Bliss, we wouldn't be here without our sponsors. Well, actually we would, but it's really nice when we have a sponsor. One that's returning too, and this is Element. Uh, it's a tasty electrolyte drink. By the way, that's spelled L-M-N-T. And it's got everything you need in it. And as you like to say, it's got all the salt and no, none of the junk, no sugar. Uh, it's formulated to help everyone uh, and their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited to folks on a keto low carb and paleo diet. Yeah, and that wouldn't be our uh, our pregnant listeners, but that might be some of um, the, the practitioners that we love who are our fans. So if you need something that doesn't have sugar and you need to make sure that your electrolytes are in balance, this is a really great and tasty option. My favorite yeah. is yeah. the chili mango. Mm -hmm. I like the chili mango. But, you know, I wanted to say that this also could be for the dads because yes. when, when you're pregnant, dads tend to like put on weight and they tend to like do those, you want to keep them slim and fit. And it's very helpful. And, you know, I'm uh, in the birthing world, uh, as you know, Bliss, uh, we have long hours and sometimes little sleep. And, you know, after being up all night and snacking on junk food, um, it's sometimes good to have something healthy to balance things out. And so element, uh, meets all those requirements. And so I think it's really uh, good that they've decided to come back to us and be one of our sponsors. Electrolytes can play a critical role in breastfeeding and regulating the appetite and curbing uh, craving. So that's why for pregnant women, even if they're not on the low carb and the keto diet, they certainly can use those electrolytes, especially when they're in labor. Absolutely. 
yeah, it's definitely um, a good replacement, especially if someone is dealing with something like gestational diabetes and they need to stay away from sugar, but we're making sure that they're well hydrated and have everything balanced. This is a great option. So we want to thank Element for coming back and being our sponsor. And for a limited time, you'll be able to claim a free Element sample pack by going to Drink Element, that's drinklmnt.com uh, slash birthing instincts. And they'll only charge you $5 for the cost of shipping. Great. Go and get your pack. Thanks, Element. All right. So the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is an organization I talk about probably every other podcast, every third podcast, there's something out there. And there's a couple of things in their most recent newsletter that I just wanted to bring up. These are like news flashes or, or the blitz thing where we're just going to go through some stuff. They did a survey that's long predicted the exodus of physicians. Back in 2003, 62% of respondents said they planned to retire at an earlier age than expected five years that they thought of five years before, citing increased government interference followed by increased regulatory burden. Yeah. The AMA is now talking about the, the AMA, which is not my favorite organization. It's a crappy organization. Um, is talking about the great resignation. I think that's a play on the words, the great reset, but it's the great resignation in quotes, stating that one in five physicians say it is likely they will leave their current practice within two years. Um, people are feeling un undervalued and overburdened with regulations. Um, yeah. The COVID vaccine mandate could cause the British National Health Service to lose 6% of its workforce or 80,000 workers. Mandates make jobs of medical workers even less desirable. We can expect the quality of workers as a group to keep decreasing. Intelligent young people will try to avoid this career path even more than now. And I do believe that that's true. I, I do believe that's true. I think that, that there's a calling and, and people like midwives who go into it, they may do that. But I think the idea of going to medical school has lost a lot of its luster. Right? I, can get, I can understand that, yes. Okay, so in medicine, there's something called the number needed to treat. And I've got something later on where we talk about vitamin K. We'll talk a little bit about the number needed to treat. But that is essentially um, the number of patients that need to be given something to prevent one adverse outcome that would have otherwise happened. And using Pfizer and CDC data, the number of children needed to be vaccinated to avert a single COVID death in a child is one in 915,641. I have never seen a number needed to treat that high. You know, in, in, in breech birth, it's something like one in 600, one in 400, depending on which papers you look at. Here you're talking about one in 915,641. So in other words, you have to give that many shots to save one kid. I'll just leave it at that. People know what I'm talking about. And then they also say in the United Kingdom that no menstrual problems have been acknowledged as a potential side effect, yet the UK flag system, which is sort of like our VAERS, has over 30,000 reports. I'll just put that out there. Okay? Okay. Okay. Um, I was on the, I, I think I sent you a copy of my response to this email from a lovely midwife who's fighting for licensure in Alabama and wanted me to review the legislative wording and her response. And it was really, I don't know if you even looked into it. Most people I sent it to said, 
they started reading it and they couldn't, they just couldn't do it anymore. And that's my whole point is that um, in the legislative protocol, they wanted to define the breach maneuvers that were approved and, and the protocols and have them written into law, including the timing of certain things from this point on, then this should happen. And this is one of those things I was worried about when they started coming out with these time algorithms and things like that. But yeah. it's like, you're writing into the law how to do a breach delivery when there isn't one way to do a breach delivery. We talked on the podcast recently that I met with, I ran into David Hayes and Betty Ann Davis at a conference here in Southern California. And we were all discussing the fact that we all do breach differently. Yeah. So they just, they just can't stop micromanaging. You know, like we have an R, like they, like they decided that there's gotta be a law that tells you, you have to tell patients their RH status. I mean, that's like saying there's a law that doctors should act like doctors and give the patients information. I mean, and, and there should be a law that says that doctors need to remember to breathe every five seconds or something because they might <laughs> otherwise pass out. I mean, where, where are we going to end with the stupidity? And this, this, the legalese that they write with, no one can understand. It's, it's yeah, it, so anyway, I just wanted to point out that I admire people who want to fight for the legislative preservation of their careers. The problem I've seen over and over and over again, and we've talked about on the podcast, is that, and we talked about about the Hawaii legislation last week, I think, or last time, is, yeah. is that these things are already predetermined. These, these legislators already have been bribed or, or influenced to vote the way they're going to vote, and they're just paying lip service to people coming to talk to them with alternatives. And that's, it's really a shame. I mean, I, I don't know. And, and even if it gets delayed one year, there's so much money coming back again the next year that how, how long can you keep fighting? And so to, I quoted um, my favorite line from the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. It was from the 80s. I love that movie. And the computer at the end, uh, they were trying to play chess against itself and he finally figured it out that the winning move is not to play. And sometimes I know that if we don't play that we're going to get run over, but, but you're going to play and you're going to get run over anyway. So we need an alternative system. We need an alternative economy, an alternative medicine, uh, you know, uh, you know, these people, these people that are going with these, um, what are they called? These contracts you have, these clubs or what are they called? They're, um, you know. Oh Yeah. I can't remember the exact wording too, where you um, you create a, a legal document that basically says that you're part of this agreement so that you don't have to be adhere to the laws. Right. 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 I think that's going to be more and more prevalent because I, I, in certain states anyway. Okay. Um, I have a letter from Travis from Maine. I love, I love getting, uh, I love getting letters from all over the country or the world actually. Yeah, it's fun. Travis says, and, he, and I got the permission to read his letter from him. My wife just gave birth to our first child, baby Marion, a few weeks ago. We live in Maine and home breaches are illegal and hospitals wouldn't let us do a vaginal birth. I mean, that's almost universal, right, Bliss? Yeah, yep. Okay. So we ended up driving to New Hampshire and giving a birth breach in a hotel with a midwife. <laughs> 
it worked out just as it should. And at 37 weeks and three days, we had our six pound, eight ounce baby girl. I just wanted to say thank you as we listen to your extreme health radio podcast. And it motivated my wife to go for the birth she wanted. Everyone around us is getting C-sections left and right. And she really didn't want that. So we were at 36 weeks and our midwife couldn't legally continue our care as in Maine, if the baby was breached, they can't continue. So we drove down to Southern Maine to her parents to establish care with a midwife down here who is connected with a CNM in New Hampshire who does breach and twins. We meet, we meet with a new midwife at four in the afternoon. I pick up her mother at the airport at 10.30 p.m. Her water breaks at 2 a.m. that night. So I get on the phone with the midwives and we don't have a place to birth. So we hit the road on the way to New Hampshire and I'm calling hotels on the way like Joseph and Mary and all the inns Aww. were full. And all the inns were full. <laughs> Aww, man, that's crazy. We, found, we finally found one that had a room and my wife and I labored there from 4.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. The midwives came later and the baby came butt first at 8.23 p.m. But then foot, then other foot, then head within two minutes, 30 seconds. This was our first child, no tearing, no excessive bleeding. It was truly remarkable. I have a video of it, <laughs> which I didn't ask him to send me. But perseverance. I mean, it's crazy that they have to do that just to be able to deliver their fucking kid like seriously and you know the the thing that he says at the end is it's like it's truly did he say miraculous um, is that the word he used no he used uh remarkable truly remarkable it's nature this is this is this is how it's meant to be this is this is when you stop trying to control everything and legislate everything and and you know be so rigid your babies will come out most of the time totally safely because we're designed to survive this is this is normal physiologic birth and everything else is just a cultural control <laughs> restriction <laughs> insanity yeah that's what i have to say about that but when we get to the end of the podcast today i got a little summary like i try to do sometimes and you what you just said is a major part of that it's great it, when they can't control every aspect of your life that they can't they don't know what to do they don't want to trust the individual because that gives them no power and they shouldn't have power over the way that a woman's baby comes out of their body. That's that there should be no power there. The only power that should be there is in the woman who's doing the work. That's it. Um, and the rest of it is BS. Okay. You, yeah. It's for our production team. What Bliss just said makes a really good meme. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, I'm going to read a um, review. Okay. Read a review. And then I have one question that I think that you could help answer. So let's do a review. I sure hope so. Okay. Um, so this is from Leslie and it was from last Friday. Um, and she says, my favorite combo, Dr. Stu and Bliss, I cannot express enough my sincere thanks to you both for your wisdom, experience, and holistic and practical approach to everything birth and being willing to share that with us through this brilliant podcast. I found your podcast after searching for evidence-based information regarding 
birth specifically VBACs as I was preparing to conceive my second child. My first birthing experience was an emergency C-section at 30 weeks gestation due to health. Um, and it was traumatic for a multitude of reasons, including obstetrical abuse. I knew I wanted something completely different for my next birth. And the more I researched physiologic, physiological birth, the more it reinforced my desire to experience that and to quote unquote, go against the grain, if you will, and go for my VBAC. I'm fairly certain I have listened to every podcast you have made as I felt the need to arm myself with all the knowledge and information possible. I am so overjoyed to say I was able to deliver my son via a beautiful healing physiological VBAC in September 2021. I credit this podcast for empowering me to stand up for myself and my desires for pregnancy and birth. The two of you are the perfect blend of boldness and sweetness. I cannot recommend this podcast enough. Thank you so much for the extraordinary work you are doing. I believe it is truly making a difference, one mom at a time. If you would only relocate to Houston, Texas, Stu, um, so I could hire both of you to attend my next birth. A mom can dream, can't she? Maybe you'll be there. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to Texas. No, you I, don't, I don't know that I would. I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm excited about that. That's a, something we'll talk about when it, when it comes up, when I'm on the road. Yeah. Um, Anyways, thank you so lovely. much for that. And I wanted to tell that our Leslie? listeners. That was Leslie? Right. Yes, Leslie. Right. Thank, um, you. I, thank you, Leslie. I wanted to also tell you guys that um, Stu and I talked to our production company this week and what we are aiming for is happening. More and more people are listening to the podcast and um, you guys are making a huge impact by sending um, reviews like that. And the other thing that they wanted us to encourage you to do is make sure that you subscribe because it really does make a difference. So thanks for supporting the podcast and getting the word out to more and more people makes us really happy. Yeah, maybe this is a good time for us to go into our um, commercial, commercial break. Yeah, commercial break for our sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> so, and a brain freeze there. <laughs> so you know what time it is, Bliss? It's time to talk about boobies. Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us. <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right. And we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do. So we love them for that. Yeah. I wish we had like a beer sponsor. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but you do. <laughs> no, I know. No, because I, I mean, Bamboobies is great stuff, but it's not products for Dr. Stu, put it that way. It's products yeah. for products for our listeners, but that's products for the bump breastfeeding and beyond. They like to say. So yeah, it's, you know, they, they, they focus really on comfort for moms, uh, both physically and emotionally, and they have great products. I mean, we've, we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second, but we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is 100% organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it, too. It's actually really good for you. Yeah. Even if you die, I do. 
<laughs> and uh, there's no lanolin or, and it's made in the USA. So tell us a little bit about the, the nursing stuff. Well, they have um, the nursing pads that I've talked to you about that I really love. They're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um, as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you, it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that <laughs> you can see them through your clothes and it's, it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart shape design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo, um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can, um, breastfeed wherever you're at. So check them out. They're great. They're great for the environment. They're great for mamas. And um, tell them about the discount codes too. Yeah, they go if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts, that's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S, you get uh, 25% off your purchase. And so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, it's <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. Okay, thanks, Bamboobies. Really appreciate it. So I love when you say thanks, Bamboobies. It makes it, it's, it's just cute the way you say that. Thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. <laughs> uh, okay, real quick, real quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we may end up spending more time on it. This is a dilemma that's come up a lot. You know, occasionally we have couples who disagree about one wants a home birth, the other is nervous about it, something like that. Now that's that's something that we have expertise in and we can discuss. And but but what's coming up a lot now, I'm getting a lot of letters from people that about couples, either they're married, still married, or divorced who differ greatly on the COVID vaccine, the COVID injection, and what to do about it, whether, whether as a married couple or more specifically, often with the children, especially with divorced couples. Yeah. I have a lot of our listeners who don't want their kids going anywhere near the injection and their spouses are on the opposite side of the fence. And it's yeah. becoming very, very contentious. Do you have any bliss wisdom on what to do about a scenario like that? I mean, it's hard to present facts to people who don't want to hear them. Yeah, I wish that I had some wisdom on this one. But unfortunately, I think if it went to court, which is what will happen a lot of times when you um, are divorced and have a custody agreement, I think that if this goes to court, the person who's on our team, so to speak, is is it's not they're not going to win. Right. I've seen it with just vac vaccines in general. This is pre-COVID, um, so I think your best uh, bet is to try and find a way to do some mediation or um, to find a way to have somebody help you really be able to listen to each other and be able to present the information in a way that. Um, hopefully you can at least get your partner to delay it until there's more information, you know, maybe talk on the, on the point more so of, you know, this is very new. 
Um, we need more time. Can we just agree to delay it um, until you know this vaccine has been out longer? That might be a, a way to to be less confrontational about the actual um, evidence that they may not be willing to actually listen to. That's my recommendation because I feel like if you go into the court system, it's going to be a lot more mainstream because of all the mandates and stuff, and it's not going to be a battle that you will win. And one other thing I'm seeing also is I'm seeing that children who are in like fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, middle school, um, who aren't vaccinated are often coming home telling their parents they want to be vaccinated. Yeah. Because they're getting pressure from their peers and also from the teachers. And they're made to be feel like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. This, is, this is terrible as far as I'm concerned. It is. But it's happening. I don't know if there's an answer, but maybe at some point in a podcast, we can find a child psychologist or something and get them on the podcast because this is a, this is a real problem and I don't have an answer for it. And I don't like not having an answer for stuff. <laughs> I don't. Well, I mean, the other thing is take your kids out of school, move to an area where, you know, that this is not the minority it's the majority like find your tribe that's all going to be very important right now especially when it comes to young children you know because you're right there's a lot of peer pressure and it's very different um in how they want to make decisions than maybe how the parent would want to make decisions for them so yeah i have a friend of mine who's got a seven-year-old and the seven-year-old came home and said she wants to get vaccinated and and the parent did something I thought was really wise. And she said, okay, well, let's, let's sit down and let's look at some of the data. Let's read some stuff together. There, yeah. rather, than, rather than saying, you know, to the kid, you know, diminishing them and saying, well, there's no way in hell you're going to get that. Or, right. yeah. you know, yeah. You, you, you do active listening and you treat them um, not as an adult, but you treat them as, uh, as an intelligent yeah. individual being who has autonomy over their body as well right so helping them make an educated to some degree yeah. choice right. yeah right. yeah beautiful i love that okay vitamin k uh i have a letter from Jeannie in phoenix who wrote me a real short letter she said can you do a story or a podcast about why you think babies are born vitamin k deficient you alluded to there being a reason in one of your lives with bliss, but didn't elaborate. I'd love to hear your thoughts or is your thought that they, they're not deficient at all? Oh no, that's, and that says Devin. I don't know why it's, oh no, that's not Jeannie. Jeannie, Jeannie was a letter above that. That's from Devin. I'm sorry, Jean, I'm sorry, Devin. That's mm -hmm. from Devin. And I don't know where Devin's from. Uh, okay, so bliss. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a brief overview from you. What do you, what's your take about vitamin K? You know what my, you know, my little talk about why are babies born vitamin K deficient if, if nature is smart. Why don't you start there? You start okay. there. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I have, I've looked at the numbers for vitamin K and what, what they're worried about is something called early or late onset vitamin K dependent bleeding. And just for background information, early onset vitamin K bleeding, hang on, I gotta get my glasses, is mostly seen in mothers who are on anticoagulation, anticonvulsants, or antibiotics. 
So if you're not on any of those medications as 99% of people are not, then the likelihood of this happening is extremely small, this early onset. Well, let's, let's pause there for a second because um, if you have a 30% C-section rate um, and a third of people who are GBS positive and 98% of those people are delivering in the hospital, you're gonna have a lot of people on antibiotics when they're delivering. That's correct? true. That's a good point. Yeah. I was thinking of being on antibiotics as like a chronic thing. No. Why, I, I don't think, know if this is like yeah. one, do one dose of ANCEF at the time of delivery. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So then, yeah, because then um, the instance of this type of bleeding is at risk of about, about 1% is what they Which say. Is still it's low. Big, mm -hmm. A big range. But it's mm -hmm. a high, it has a high fatality rate. 80%. So, that's correct. So what we need to figure out is we need to figure out when it says antibiotics, does that mean one dose of, uh, of ampicillin when you're in labor? Or does it mean, you know, you've been on, you're chronically on antibiotics because you have a chronic condition? Um, I don't see how one dose of antibiotics changes the microbiome that much. All right. It, it does. That's why we that's why we counsel people when they do GBS to really consider that it changes the biome. It does. Women know because we often get um, we often get yeast infections after after doing antibiotics. So um, it the thing is is that you know we talk about this before, Stu, everything's interconnected. And because so much of, of what we're doing in childbirth is intervening with the process, it's all connected. So you can't, you can't separate out all of those things that I just mentioned when you're counseling. You know, we get to counsel people who are delivering at home and the majority of our clients are not doing antibiotics. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what your statistic and is. They're also, but, yeah, and they're also getting skin to skin and they're also in the home and their yeah. microbiome is the same in that whole, in the whole home, yeah. not the hospital. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is, is that um, babies don't have uh, vitamin K stores in their system until they're about eight days old. That's physiologically, that's how babies are born. Why? Well, we don't know. I mean, because vitamin K is synthesized by bacteria in the gut and it takes a week, you know, that many days for the bacteria in the gut to get established to make it. But this does bring me back to my theory about nature isn't stupid. And right. if babies were needed to be born with vitamin K, nature would have figured out a way to do that. So maybe there's a benefit from babies not having high vitamin K levels in the first few days of life. And the theory that I can put forward is that, you know, we don't want maybe the baby, we don't want the blood clotting in places where it's not supposed to clot, like in the brain, in the heart, in the developing pancreas, in the developing liver. Uh, we don't want micro platelet or not, or not platelets, but microclots going on, um, possibly altering blood flow or doing something that's different. Because again, nature isn't, isn't, nature has a reason for doing something. And we've evolved to a point where babies are born vitamin K deficient. Why? And again, we, this gets back to the number needed to treat thing. And right. why are we giving every single baby without differentiating risk factors vitamin K when, when, when there's probably no benefit to most babies, but theoretically there's 
a risk we don't understand. Why would we do that? I agree. I agree 100%. And you know how you were saying earlier, I, I hate not knowing things. I really wish I understood what the body is doing and why that it's developed it that way um, so that that could be part of my counseling. I think the only thing that we're able to do is, is create questions to have parents as they're in, being informed about this to really think about it more critically rather than just going with, oh, it's just a vitamin. There's no problems with giving them a vitamin if they don't have enough in their body. And 80% of this small percentage of babies could die. You know, um, I think that the counseling can be a little broader to include, like we don't totally understand why nature does this, but if, if you trust that nature is doing it for a reason, then you might want to consider alternative ways of um, dealing with this potential risk. Yeah, especially if you're a mother who isn't on anticoagulation, anticonvulsants, or antibiotics. And also for the late onset vitamin K-dependent bleeding, this occurs between two and 12 weeks of life. By the way, some people ask us, why does the vitamin K oral regimen go once a week for 12 weeks? Mm -hmm. And that's because this thing can go on and it can occur later in life. So that may, that actually explained that to me because I didn't really have an answer for that because I thought, well, by, by, by the week or two, the baby's making its own vitamin K. Why do they need to take it for 12 weeks? And apparently um, it can, this can occur up to that long. But risk factors for late onset are, are diarrhea, hepatitis, cystic fibrosis, celiac disease, and something called alpha-1 antitryptin deficiency. Again, extremely rare things that are going on. It tends to be more severe than early onset and has a high incidence of intracranial bleeding. All right. And the rate is the rate runs about six per hundred thousand in untreated infants. Now, I don't know if that's all untreated infants or if that's untreated infants who have these risk factors. But anyway, six per hundred thousand is about one in 14,000 and change. All right. One in 15,000. No, it's actually it's about one in 16,000. Excuse me. My math. Not great. Um, so, again, the, the number needed to treat is really high to prevent one case. And yes, a lot of people say it's innocuous, it's just vitamin K, but it comes with preservatives in it. I mean, there's no aluminum in it, there's no mercury in it, it's not a vaccine, but it comes You're with- You're talking the, about the shot. You're the talking shot, about the shot. The shot mm -hmm. Which is what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, that paragon of virtue that we talked about, I think in last week's podcast, um, looking at uh, alternative birth things that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I don't understand exactly why it's something that is mandated. And I think that in some states, there's a law that they are supposed to be given vitamin K. Uh, and if you refuse it, you have to sign a consent form or something that says you're refusing it. And then you risk, in certain circumstances, obviously the wrath of people in the hospital who think you're a bad parent because you don't want to give your kid vitamin K. Right. So stay home. Um, <laughs> um, so I just wanted to mention when we're talking about um, the injectable, which is the typical standard of care um, to give an injection of vitamin K within the first few hours postpartum. Um, the alternative is to give oral vitamin K and um, we, Dr. Stu and I have done some research um, and 
our recommendation, our protocol is to do the 12 week, as you were mentioning, uh, regimen. There are shorter regimens, but the statistically what they have found is that they are that they're not as effective um, as the injectable unless you do this longer regimen. And, and what we do is two drops at delivery and then one drop, the parent um, gives the baby one drop per week for 12 weeks following the delivery. And, and statistically, the efficacy is almost exactly the same as the injectable. So, yeah, and it's an emulsified vitamin K. You can find it on Amazon. It's pretty easy to find. Um, the injectable dose, um, the usual recommended dose of 0.5 milligrams, which I think is what's in the, the injectable dose. And by the way, um, there are many different kinds of injectable uh, vitamin K. There's one that comes in a pre-filled syringe and that would be the one that we would strongly recommend. The ones where you break off the top and they have multi-dose vials, wouldn't want, to, wouldn't want to be using those so much. But they say that this 0.5 milligram dose given to newborns um, is actually in great excess of the 25 micrograms actually required to promote the process of creating per precursors to the clotting proteins. Yet the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends the 0.5 milligram intramuscular injection administered soon after birth. Um, I don't know why, uh, but the American Academy of Pediatrics tends to give me one of those organizations that the more I look at what they recommend, the more I understand that like I'm in disagreement with just about every one of their recommendations. Doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong, but I don't think that they have strong evidence that they could defend their positions. And I think they put out edicts again with a medical model looking at worst case scenario and not concerned about you know, side effects or other things for all the babies that really don't need it or didn't need it. It's not their right. thing. Right. Right. And also, you know, um if we're gonna be talking about vitamin K in depth as we are, I, I want to make sure and mention one of the reasons why people would choose either to decline or to use oral over the injectable is that you just, this baby just entered the world and they're getting used to having lights and sounds and being touched and you know all of the things that are happening. And now you've injected them, you've given them this pain stimulus almost immediately after they've come here. And it just, um, you know, it does not facilitate them having a gentle, peaceful transition. Now, if you need it, if a baby is sick and they need it, or you have risk factors, you know, that's a different thing. Then you, again, you weigh out the risk benefit, but for a baby who, who is just a normal baby coming into the world, you might want to consider um, what their experience is. And I would also add that I don't think there's any data that says it needs to be given in the first hour of life. I think it's done in the hospital because the nurses have the baby in the delivery room at that point and they can get it done. It makes yeah. no sense. I don't know that it makes sense other than for convenience to do it that way. I think that you could wait till the next day if you wanted to do the IM shot or the day after that. I mean, it's, like, it's not something that needs to be done emergently, maybe slightly more urgently than giving hepatitis vaccine, but which doesn't need to be done at all. 
except in risk factor cases. Uh, the last thing I would add about vitamin K and uh, is that the physician's desk reference, which used to be a book and is now online, um, has a package warning saying that the intramuscular use of vitamin K has been known to cause anaphylaxis, shock, cardiac, and respiratory arrest. But we know of no such reported cases in infants. So I, I think that it's probably not likely to do that. But if you're giving informed consent to people, then people should know that. If you have to tell them what their RH status is, then you should be, probably need to tell them what their uh, vitamin K giving to their baby theoretically can do. Yes. And then previous research indicated a connection between IM vitamin K and childhood leukemia. But subsequent studies have been unable to conclusively prove or disprove this connection. Well, you know, if you can't conclusively disprove a connection about leukemia and vitamin K, then you really got to weigh the, the benefits of vitamin K strongly against the risks. Despite all that, the American Academy of Pediatrics concludes that there is no link between the two and babies should get vitamin K. Knowing the American Academy of Pediatrics thinks this, I feel so much better. <laughs> okay. Snarkiness aside, it's part of our charm, <laughs> my charm anyway. Okay. Um, it is part of your charm. I got a letter here um, from Anonymous, although it, it was from Instagram. I know who it was, but I think I'm going to keep it anonymous. And I'm going to read this letter. I'm going to move on. I wanted to just a little bit follow up on the ARRIVE trial and sort of the, yeah. the, the, the brain, not the brain, the thinking behind it. So uh, I know you, uh, Dr. Stu, I know you'll see it too, but the pros are so marginal with somewhat marginal adverse neonatal outcomes. However, inducing everyone at 39 weeks appears not to hold up as great as they'd hoped. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Full disclosure, my husband is an OB, hence I'd like to remain anonymous. <laughs> I'm siding with you and Bliss, and for that matter, the scientific evidence at hand. I do have a master's degree in social science. Yes, it's not that great, but taught me statistics and the scientific method. So I know numbers when I see them. Mm -hmm. So many important data points are not considered because they are either not easy to measure or they were purposely ignored. She's talking about the ARRIVE trial. Mm -hmm. Things like breastfeeding success and bonding, epidural rates, psychological effects on the mother. That's not what's important to the scientists at hand, sadly. I've had three kids never induced luckily, but those endpoints matter a lot. Sadly, not in the current setting, as all matters there is a living set of a mother and child. Yeah. Getting back to my getting back to my baby in the bassinet um, as the only endpoint that seems to matter in most obstetrical research. And this and this movement for zero risk. Yeah. Like, you know, that we've talked about recently. Zero risk to who? I thought this study was interesting, though, as it showed only marginal at best uh, better outcomes for inducing everyone so early. As it happens, my sibling is a doctor back home in Europe, and she's mortified with the ARRIVE trial. Needless to say, breech birth back home is a deviation of normal two. That's in East Germany, or ex-East Germany, but I know that. Okay, so um, just last month, looking for the date, yeah, February 7th, um, the um, Elsevier, uh, which is a publishing company, and I just want to mention one sentence about them, that there's, if people want to Google, I don't use Google, people want to search about, look up Elsevier corruption on the internet. 
And you'll find that actually in 2019 or so, and even the decade before that, this publishing company was using, was skewing its data, was, was directing people toward its papers and away from other papers. And it made, made something like $1.7 billion on publishing stuff. And they're just a publisher. So how do they make that much money? There's something about them. And I, re I remember that when I saw that, so I had to go Google it because, or look it up. God damn. <laughs> Google's also going to be one of those words oh, that we can't say on the podcast. All right. So. See? So many rules. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You, if, you, if it's like Pavlov, if you keep doing it, you're going to change people. That's how, that's how they get us to do their bidding and change the language. So we got to fight back. I hear you. The first sentence in this, this uh, summary paper says, the ARRIVE trial demonstrated the benefit of elective induction of labor at 39 weeks gestation. All right. That's a mm -hmm. statement. And that's, the, and that's, and I, and I wrote in my margin, I wrote, did it though? Did it really? Okay. But they're going at this thing with that premise. So now here's, here's some of the issues they put in here and you decide whether that actually is true. Can you, can you say the statement again? It proved, is that what you're saying? It proved that it- Demonstrated the benefit of elective induction of labor at 39 weeks. Yeah, okay. All right. So they use a group here where they look back at, at three years worth of women who were pre-arrived trial, who delivered between January 1st of 2015 and December 31st of 2017. And they looked at one year's worth of women who delivered after the arrived trial, okay? So after the arrived trial will be people that got induced at 39 weeks. And before the arrived trial was just people, women. <laughs> ah, sorry. Oh, well. All right. After adjusting the person in, the person in um, Alberta, Canada would be quite happy that I just made that blunder. Okay. After adjusting for differences, the post-arrived group, which is the ones that followed the arrived trial, was more likely to undergo induction, yes, and deliver by 39 weeks and six days. The post-arrived group had a significantly lower rate of cesarean delivery than the pre-arrived group. All right, so let's understand what significantly means. The C-section rate in the arrived group was 27.3%. The C-section re rate in the pre-arrived group was 27.9%. Mm -hmm. So, Maybe with some statistical manipulation, they call that significant. But would you call 27.3 <laughs> versus 27.9 a significant decrease in cesarean section rate? No, sir, I would not. The post-arrived group were more likely to receive blood transfusions, more likely to be admitted to the maternal intensive care unit after the delivery. That's not the neonatal, that's the maternal one. Mm -hmm. Neonates in the post-arrived group were more likely to need assisted ventilation. Neonates in the post-arrived group were more likely to have a low five-minute APGAR score. Okay. So those are not minor things. And all no. of them were worse, except the C-section rate. All of them were worse in the arrived trial group. So there were more inductions of labor, more deliveries at 39 weeks gestation, and fewer cesarean deliveries in the year after the arrived trial. But statistically, significant increases in some adverse maternal and neonatal outcomes should be explored to determine if there was a relationship 
with concurrent changes in obstetric practices. Well, what the hell does that mean? It, it means that we need to take a look at the fact that we've, we're all moving, not all, but we're moving towards um, inducing people sooner and we're having all these adverse outcomes since then. So we need to be taking a closer look at how they're connected. Yeah, but Bliss, they, they say that there's fewer cesarean deliveries in the year after the ARRIVE trial. So they're, they're crediting that to the ARRIVE trial. Mm -hmm. But the adverse events are not being discredited to the ARRIVE trial. They're saying, well, right. we, gotta figure out, we gotta figure out why that happened. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So maybe the same things that why that happened caused the cesarean rate to go and had nothing to do with the ARRIVE. I'm just saying that this was a completely biased little piece of junk, all right? And the reason that I know that it's a biased piece of junk, in my opinion, again, everything we talk about on the podcast is Bliss's opinion, my opinion. We, we, we quote data, but you know, take it for a grain of salt. But there's a British Medical Journal article that came out in 2021 um, that looked at outcomes from the ARRIVE trial. And I'm just going to try to go through a few of these things real quickly. This is from New South Wales in Australia. And they looked at uh, 474,000 births, um, of which 70,000 had induction of labor for non-medical reasons. So that would be the ARRIVE trial stuff. The primary birth women were with induction of labor versus spontaneous onset differed significantly for spontaneous vaginal birth. The induction of labor only had a 42% success rate. The spontaneous labor had a 62% success rate. Instrumental birth was higher in the induction of labor group, 28% to 24%. Intrapartum cesarean section in the induction of labor group was 29% in this study and only 14% and only in the spontaneous labor group. So completely different findings than the ARRIVE trial. Significant. Significant, right. <laughs> Epidural rate was 71% in the ARRIVE group I mean, excuse me, in the induced group and 41% in, um, in the spontaneous labor group. Yeah. Episiotomy was 41% to 30%. Postpartum hemorrhage was 2.4% to 1.5%. So following induction, incidence of neonatal birth trauma, resuscitation and respiratory disorders were higher as were admissions to hospital for infections up to 16 years later. There was no difference in hospitalization for asthma or eczema or for neonatal death or in total deaths, but they followed these kids for 16 years and they found that those kids that were in the induction group had higher incidences of things like neonatal birth trauma, resuscitation, and respiratory disorders were higher. All right. Um, yeah. It's, then they go in background, they say around one in three women are now induced in some high income countries. In Australia, in 2018, 45% of selected primate women aged between 20 and 34, whose babies were beyond 37 weeks with a singleton baby in the vertex presentation were induced. 45, 45%. 45%. Where, here in the States or? No, Australia. Australia, mm -hmm. right. crazy. Crazy. Ja God. Yeah, it's insane, it's insane. 45% were induced before 41 weeks. This is between 37 and 41 weeks. Yeah. Okay, so the number needed to treat, which is that number that we talked about was over 900,000 for, um, for the COVID vaccine for kids. 
-hmm. number needed to treat to prevent one perinatal death with induction was 426 from the Cochrane reviews. Now, I know we're getting into the weeds here, but that's about a typical number needed to treat. You have to, you have to induce 426 people who don't need to be induced to prevent one baby that might die in, in labor. All right. The current WHO guideline on labor induction only recommends induction of labor after if after 41 weeks pregnant, not 39 weeks. Yeah. No studies have examined long-term outcomes. All right. So just real quickly, in summary for this, the study raised important questions about as to why the short-term results are so different from from the randomized controlled trial discussed at the beginning of this paper, which is the ARRIVE trial. For example, C-section rates were around three times higher for primate women at all gestational ages of labor onset, in direct contrast to the outcomes from a recent randomized controlled trial. Every time they say that, they mean the ARRIVE trial is reference number nine. It could be a function of non-represented study populations in the random, randomized controlled trial. In all of the recent randomized controlled trials, which is the ARRIVE trial, examining the question of induction of labor versus spontaneous onset of labor, significant number of women between 70 and 86% declined to participate. So we've talked about that. Why is it only 20% of women offered induction of labor are participating? And what is the demographics of that 20% that makes them have a C-section rate that is very similar in their trial. They're picking a selective group of people as opposed to just what's going on in the regular population. It suggests that those who took part might have had a different attitude to induction than the majority of women in the local population, raising questions about external validity of the trial results, the ARRIVE trial. Um, and lastly, it is widely agreed that on the basis of quote, first do no harm, Intervention should not be undertaken for women with uncomplicated pregnancy, labor, and childbirth unless there is clear evidence of benefit, either at the population or the individual level. In a Swedish cohort study, women who were induced more often used epidurals for pain relief and were less satisfied. This contrasts with the findings that there is no difference in need for labor pain relief or perception of pain reported in the ARRIVE trial. Sounds like every, you know, the ARRIVE trial is the outlier and the outlier is the one that's being chosen, which yeah. sounds, sounds eerily familiar to the term breach trial being the outlier and pretty much every other study, including the large promoter trial and other studies that show, did not show a difference between breach and cesarean delivery for, for breach birth, vaginal and yeah. um, that everyone chose the outlier trial because it met the narrative. Hmm. It's all coming of around. control. It's all coming around, right? Yes. There is an urgent need to understand why the observational data on induction of labor are consistently at odds with the findings from the arrived trial. Um, the choices women make in subsequent pregnancies following an experience of induction of labor also need to be explored further, with emerging evidence that some women seek to have home births and even free birth in order to avoid perceived pressure and it, and to accept induction of labor in the hospital, right? Yeah. Yes. Our data suggests for women who do not have a medical indication for labor, induction, labor induction at or near term, there could be increased rates of interpartum interventions and adverse outcomes in the short term for mother and neonate 
and of hospitalization for infection in the longer term for children. We did not find any benefits of induction of labor for neonates at any term gestation of labor onset. So the only problem I have with with that statement is um, it's talking about in not inducing if there are no medical indications. But the funny thing is they seem to just keep finding medical indications like your baby's too big, your pelvis is too small, your fluid's low, your placenta's aging, <laughs> just go, you know, they're going to find a reason to do it, which is why women are, you know, wanting to just take themselves completely out of the whole system in general, because they just don't want to deal with that. No, they don't. And I get it. Okay. So I hope that that was a useful summary for people, people who are, their doctors are telling them, let me, let me give you that reference again. The doctors are telling you that the ARRIVE trial is the greatest thing since sliced bread. This is a um, British medical journal. It's called Interpartum Interventions and Outcomes for Women and Children Following Induction of Labor at Term in Uncomplicated Pregnancies, a 16-year population-based linked data study. The head author is Dahlen, Hannah G, D-A-H-L-E-N. And I think if Let's you- Make sure we put it in the show notes. Yeah, and then you guys can take this to your OB who wants to induce you at 39 weeks because you're yeah. because you're over 35 or because you know uh, your blood pressure went from 106 over 60 to 110 over 74, and so that could be a sign that you're developing hypertension. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stu. All right. So the theme that we had today was pretty much everything that's being touted as good is antithetical to, to nature and to common sense, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty much everything that we talked about today. Pretty much everything. Right. It doesn't we seem- need more, We need more magic and we need more love and we need uh, more connection and we need to trust nature more. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It do, it's, it, it seems to me that more and more that large corporations, government, anything that's big, wants centralized control. Google yeah. wants to control what you see and Facebook wants to control what you speak and Twitter and stuff. And it's one size fits all. It's this is right and that's wrong. And the, the idea that we can have open debate and that the idea of free speech is to allow people the right to say things you might not agree with, but you'll defend to the death the right to say them. These things are disappearing. And the question is why? Because, because we talked about this a long time ago on the podcast. There's no power in yes. There's only power in saying no. And the individual decisions can't be controlled. And they, that bothers people who want to control things. Mm -hmm. All right? They want to control your life. And that's why they want to control your health, your finances, your fuel and transportation ability, communication, your right of assembly, right? They want to control all that stuff because if you can control that, if you can go to your local uh, bowling alley and have them, you know, and, and share stories, and if you can go to your church and pray and to somebody that's not them, um, if you can get in your car and drive anywhere you want at any time, rather than having to take the bus or the train that they control, if you can spend your money on anything that you want, as opposed to them having digital currency where they can track what you spend it on 
and then maybe decide at some point that you're not a good citizen. And then they say, you can't spend it on a, on a trip to go to Mexico and your credit card won't work. And this is coming. And if people don't think it's coming, they're naive because it's coming and it's going to be awful unless we turn it around um, via our electoral system here in the United States. I don't know what you do in a place like Canada, which is sort of really lost its way. I, I, it, I never thought I'd, I'd live, I mean, I, we say this, everybody says this kind of thing, but I never thought, Bliss, that I'd see to live the day to see that people who speak out against the Canadian government are gonna, are having their bank accounts frozen. How is yeah. that? I, I, yeah, okay, never mind. <laughs> um, it's all done in the guise of safety, but safety is this foolish canard that's always used as a, as a method of tyranny. Zero risk, right? Right. Okay. Because they, they don't want to trust the individual. That's it. So some, you know, but somehow millions of our colleagues uh, have been convinced that the government is wise and benevolent. And they, and they want to believe that the CDC is telling them the truth. They want to believe that, that um, they have their best interest at heart, that if only the government would run healthcare, it would be, it would be so much better. Oh, God. Help me. So give us, you need give to us, go. You need to go take a walk and do some meditation after this, by the way. Yeah, I need to <laughs> be blazed. My prescription for you. Yeah. 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 So I love you. I got to run. I got some clients I got to get on the phone with very soon. You mean you have to work? I, I got to, I love what I do. I got to go connect with other humans and open their hearts and their minds. That's what uh, I'm doing. Yeah. Well, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Because we all, we all have our niche and um, yours is nurturing. Yours is, is spreading love and positivity. And mine is until more, I die, hopefully. And mine is much more concrete than uh, the harsh reality of things. Sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's why they love us. That's, that's why <laughs> Most love, of them. I love you. And I love you too. I'll see you next time. Okay, sweetie. Have a good day. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 